The Bible Study Podcast, episode 709. Today, the Bible Study Podcast continues the study of the book of 1 Corinthians with chapter 11. Welcome to the Bible Study Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Christensen. We continue on with 1 Corinthians talking about worship. Chapter 11, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ on covering the head in worship. I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding to the traditions just as I pass them on to you. But I want to realize that the head of every man is Christ and the head of the woman is man and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is the same as having her head shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, she might as well have cut her hair off. But if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, then she should cover her head. A man ought to not cover his head since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. It is for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her own head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman. But everything comes from God. Judge for yourself. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him, but that if a woman has long hair, it is to her glory? For long hair is given to her as a covering. If anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. Okay, so... Paul has some particular opinions about covering the head in worship. And I don't know about you, but I go to a church where men might wear a cap, might cover their head, and women certainly most of the time do not cover their head to pray. So are we doing it wrong? Was Paul wrong? Or is something else going on here? And I'm going to lean to that third explanation here. We have to remember that some of what we're reading in Paul's letters is going to be contextual, and some of it is going to be lasting. Some of it is going to be relative to the time period, and we can pull things out, like, for instance, the sacrificing of meat to idols, which is not an issue that we have, but we were able to pull out of it teachings for ourselves, even though we're not in that situation. And then there's some of it, obviously, that is meant for every time and every place. And how do you tell the difference? There are places, for instance, where Paul says not to wear gold. Well, I'm wearing a gold wedding ring. And in my time and place, it means something different than it meant in Paul's time, which was before wedding rings and to wear gold was immodest. So how do we deal with these things? How do you figure out what is meant for now and what is meant for always? And that's a good question, and it's a question that the church has pondered about and has argued about and doesn't always have a good answer for. But I know that if you come into my church, even as a woman, if you have your head shaved, I'm going to think it was an odd fashion choice, but I'm not going to think it's a theological choice. But we have to remember that in his day, what he's talking about here, if a woman was to have her hair not long, even a bob or something like that, that would be immodest. It would be it would mean something different than it means today, which is just 
I don't like having long hair and, and my hair gets, you know, stays wet longer if it's longer, whatever reason women cut their hair short. And he's also implying here that men have short hair. And that was true among the Romans and among the Greeks. It, it wasn't necessarily as true with Jesus or the disciples or the people who lived in that part of the world. So some of this, even in his day, would be different in different places. And we've seen that over history. For instance, if you had lived in the Victorian time, it would have been considered indecent for you to show your table legs. It's one of the reasons we have tablecloths is not only should a woman not show her legs, but your table shouldn't show its legs. Now, I think you'd be hard-pressed to find a Christian today who is somehow stirred up into some sort of flights of sin because they see a table leg. And so certainly things are going to be different in different times. And I think this is one of those sets of verses that it's probably what the reformers would have called audiophora. It's one of the things that you could argue about, but it probably is not the most significant thing. So why is he leaning into this in this particular time? I think one of the things we have to take from this is he's asking people to behave in a fashion within their society is considered modest. And so he's asking them not to give people the wrong idea about Christians in part is what's going on here because of how they act or because of how they dress or because of even how they wear their hair. And that I think is something that is more timeless. Even as fashions may change, the idea that we should still behave in a fashion that is modest is probably an enduring truth because we don't want to give people the wrong idea and because we don't want to stir people up towards sin. Now, that's one of the things that's going on here. And he's also dealing here with the difference between men and women. And of course, you're going to say, Paul, I know that Paul, he's a bachelor. <laughs> and he was. I don't want to say that Paul sees men and women as unequal, but he doesn't see them as the same. He sees them having different roles, and that's true with all his letters. He sees that the man in his understanding is the head of the household, but when he encourages people in other letters for women to love man and men lay down your lives for your spouse, for your wife, like Christ laid down for the church, he's not putting the man up on a pedestal here. He's saying you need to love each other differently, but not necessarily unequally. And we can argue about that for sure. But, you know, certainly if you want to trade me your love for my lay your life down, I will trade you in any given day. And so in this case, when we're talking about how people should behave, there is some expectation that Paul has, there's some expectation that the church has, some expectation that society has. And untangling those is going to be a little tricky. If you read this passage and you have long hair and you're a man, or if you have short hair and you're a woman, I would encourage you that if you feel guilty about it, maybe do something about it. But otherwise, I think this is one of those things that we can say that this is probably anchored more firmly in the first century. Some Christians are going to disagree with me, and, and I could be wrong. More importantly, correcting an abuse of the Lord's Supper. In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you has God's approval. So then, when you come together, it is 
not the Lord's Supper you eat. For when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this manner. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then, Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment on themselves. This is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, When we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so we will not be finally condemned with the world. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. Anyone who is hungry should eat something at home so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. And when I come, I will give further directions. This may not sound like what happens in your church. So let's talk about what was different here at this time versus now. Some things are the same and some things are different. So first of all, when people went to church, there were no church buildings and it wouldn't be church buildings for another couple hundred years. They went to church in someone's home. And when they had what we think of as communion or the Eucharist or the Holy Meal and whatever they call it in your church, it was usually more of a meal and less of a little bit of bread and a little bit of wine or a little bit of grape juice, depending on your tradition. It was an actual meal. And so he's saying that some people would come late because they're coming from work. They're a slave or they're a working person and they don't have the ability to come. Others have come early and they aren't just having a little wine. They're getting drunk. Now, I don't know about you. I have never seen anybody get drunk at communion, but that was the problem they were having here. And the big problem that Paul has with this is what is this whole Lord's Supper thing about? Remember, he is saying it goes back to what Jesus did on the night before he was betrayed. And he uses these words here that many of us use in our church services. These are the exact words we use when we have communion or Lord's Supper at my church. We use these words from Paul. And he says, Christ was saying, I'm giving you myself. I'm becoming the body and blood that is the sacrifice to save you. Remember, he was doing this in the context of the Lord's Supper, which was on the Passover meal night. They were having the Passover meal, the Seder. They were having the lamb. They were having the many cups of wine that you have with the Passover meal. The Passover where the lamb was sacrificed as the people were coming out of Egypt so that the the condemnation of God, that the angel of the Lord would pass over their houses and not inflict on them the death of the firstborn that was going to happen to the Egyptians. So this was a mark for those people in Egypt that they were God's people. 
and they came together ready to go as God's people and ate this Passover meal the first time. Now, when Jesus and his disciples eat it again, they are again remembering what God did as he chose his people, as he selected them, as he protected them, as he made them a people and brought them out of Egypt. So they're doing that, but they're also at the same time, Jesus is saying something else is going on here, something new, where Jesus is becoming, at the time that of the Last Supper, the sacrifice. Jesus is going to be that lamb. Jesus is going to be giving his blood instead of the wine or instead of the blood of sacrificial animals, that God again would pass over our sin this time once and for all, not having to do Passover celebrations over and over again, uh, not having to do the sacrifices at the altar over and over again, but once for all. Jesus is becoming the sacrifice. So that's one thing that's going on in this Lord's Supper. He's saying, and you're forgetting about it. You're just getting drunk. Right, You're forgetting the importance of what we're doing to remember. We're doing this to remember Christ's sacrifice, and we're doing it together. It's not a separate thing. I mean, I know that we will sometimes, we'll take communion off to people who can't be with us, but the reason for that is to include them, even if we can't have them with us. It's to make them feel included in the body of Christ, that the whole point of this, this whole Lord's Supper here is inclusion, it's community. And he said, you're screwing it up. You're letting some people go home hungry and some people go home drunk. You're sort of missing the point of community completely. And you're missing the point of what Jesus did for us. And when you miss that point and you come and you have communion, he's saying, or come have the Lord's Supper, then you're doing that and bringing judgment on yourself. And I think we'll stop there. If you have any questions, send an email to host at the Bible study podcast.com or better yet, leave a comment on this episode at the Bible study podcast.com. And thanks so much for listening. This, this is my skyship dreamer. My cargo is stories, and our destination, dreams. With Abide Sleep Stories for Kids, you can help your children fall asleep fast and learn about God. To find these kids' bedtime stories, go to lifeaudio.com or search your favorite podcast app for Abide Stories for Kids. You can also download the Abide app for more biblical meditations at abide.com.